All right, well, tonight we're back in our study of 1 Peter. If you, uh, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. And uh, if you're new tonight, or if you've not been around Timberlake very long, uh, we use these Thursday nights uh, very purposefully. And we, we want to make, in the teaching, we want to make our way through a particular book of the Bible. Usually, we kind of pick a book for the year. Um, this year, it's 1 Peter. Last year, it was Philippians. The year before that was 1 John. So we, we're working through the Bible um, and through these individual books. doesn't mean the topics and topical teaching is unimportant. Um, we do topical teaching, and a lot of it, on Sunday mornings. Uh, you're going to hear topics like decision-making, dating, things like that. We're in a topic on friendships right now that some of our guys are, are leading us through. But we always want to make sure that the, that the bread and butter, that our staple in the church is studying through books of the Bible. Now, I know for most of you this is like, duh, but it's good to kind of keep this, keep this in front of us. Why do we, why do we want to make it a, a staple to study through Scripture? Why do we grind our way verse by verse through 1 Peter, for example? Because we want to make sure that we're really understanding what the author intends in the Scriptures. We want to make sure we understand what the author's intention is. Our goal in studying Scripture is to understand what it means so we can be transformed by its truth. Anybody can stand up and hold the Bible in their hand and say that this is what the Bible you know, means and quote a verse here or there. But we really want to, want to understand. When it comes to understanding the meaning, we need to know what the author intended when he wrote it. And if, if you wrote a letter and somebody found it 200 years later, and they were going to give a presentation on what it means, then you would want them to understand your intention, right, in writing it. It wouldn't be right for them just to take one of your sentences out and ignore the rest of everything else you wrote. And so, to understand your intention, then, they would need to deal with the whole of your letter, everything that you wrote. And so, when it comes to studying Scripture, the same is true. God inspired the authors of the Bible to write what we have, and to write the scriptures in the way that we have it. God inspired these authors to write not just systematic theology, but letters and gospels and the book of Acts and narrative and poetry and all these, this anthology that we have. And that means that if we're going to understand what, what they mean, what these authors mean, we've got to understand the intentions of the authors who wrote them. We could go one step further, and, and it's, it's actually arrogant of us to think that we can know what the church needs better than God knows what the church needs. Follow what, I'm, follow what I'm saying? God gave us not just the words of Scripture, but He gave us the way that Scripture is, comes to us in these individual books of the Bible. And so there's an arrogance for us to think that we can cherry-pick our favorite verses or themes and think that that's all that the church needs, think that we know better than God, because this is what God's given us. And the Lord thinks, apparently, that we need all of Scripture, the whole council, uh, it's because that's what he's inspired and given to us. And so that means the church should study and teach all of God's word to his people. And that's why we're studying through First Peter this year. All right, That was the intro before the intro. Um, but just a, a quick reminder, I like to throw those in every now and again uh, while we're doing what we're doing. All right, now, speaking of 1 Peter and his intention in writing, do you remember why he wrote this letter? Pop quiz. Persecution, okay? There was difficulty... They were hitting the churches that he was writing to. That's right. He was in, writing to encourage this network of suffering churches. That's right. The difficulties had increased, and he wanted to make sure that these precious believers across all of Asia Minor 
that these believers understood what was happening to them. He didn't want them to, to misinterpret their difficulties. He wanted to encourage them so that they would know how to na- navigate them faithfully. He didn't want them to start doubting God like we often do when our lives get tough. You know, does, does, does this mean that God doesn't love me? Does this mean I'm really not part of God's people if my life's hard because I'm following Christ? Why is God letting this happen to me? The questions that often hit whenever we are facing hardship. So one of the first things that Peter does in this letter is he reminds us in detail about how God has graciously made us into his people. He's restored us as his covenant partners. He's brought us into his divine family, into his royal family, we could say, into a covenant relationship with him. And he doesn't want us thinking that our present trials means that we are not God's people in some way. Or that God has abandoned us, or he doesn't love us. Because Peter would say that nothing could be further from the truth. So in these opening verses, really beginning in verse 3, Peter runs the gamut and then he, he drives home everything that God has done for us. And so I forgot my clicker as well. So I'm going to run down here and grab that and run back up here and see if it works. There we go. All right, so Peter opens this letter and he's really driving home the identity of the church. Who are we? What have we received? This has to be fixed in our minds if we're going to endure the trials that are coming and that are here in our lives. And so, kind of get our bearings, we'll start with a little bit of review. Peter starts the letter by talking about our spiritual rebirth. He talks about this in verse 3, and he says that God has caused us to be born again. We have to understand that. That means that God's given us spiritual life, that God has fathered us, we could say. We were once dead in our sins. We were doing what we wanted. Somebody shared the gospel with us. We believed it. Why did we believe it? Because God gave us new birth. He gave life to our dead hearts. He opened our blind eyes. He gave us faith to trust him. That is the new birth. That's what Peter's talking about when he says, God has caused us, verse 3, to be born again. That's what it means to be fathered by God himself. And it was his choice to do that. Or as he says back in verse 1, it was his election of us. We are elect. We're chosen by God for this new birth. He's brought us forth into his family. And now, Peter says, we have real hope. Before we had all kinds of false hopes, all kinds of things that we live for that would lead to death and judgment. But now we are alive spiritually and our hope is alive too, he says. We might call that a resurrection hope. It's a hope that our bodies will be resurrected one day. That our bodies will catch up, we might say, with that inner resurrection that's already happened. That inner life that God's given us. Our bodies are going to catch up with that one day. And he says it's rooted in Christ's resurrection. Because because Christ has been raised from the dead, we too have hope that we will be raised from the dead to everlasting life. Right along with Christ. So we have a resurrection hope in addition to the new birth. But being born into God's family doesn't just mean resurrected bodies, as glorious as that is. It also means we're going to receive an eternal inheritance, too. A land for our resurrected bodies to live in. When Christ comes back, when He returns, He's going to apportion out the land. 
He's going to give us our inheritance in the new creation. And we're going to reign with Him forever. And that's this language that Peter uses, this this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading. We've been given that. So even though we're suffering now, it doesn't look like we might be poor now, mistreated in the world, we have this coming. But what about now? Speaking of right now, what about why we're still here on this old earth in these bodies that are decaying and dying? In the meantime, Peter says, God is guarding our faith while we're here. He's going to keep us believing, and we'll call this a a preserved faith. It's another blessing we have. God's guarding our faith. He's keeping us believing. No matter what comes at us, God will keep us believing in His promises. He's going to guard us to make sure that we make it to that new creation, that inheritance. And that preservation is necessary because now is also the time for trials, says Peter. It's the time for trials. We're grieved by them now, but the trials aren't meaningless. They're not arbitrary. We shouldn't start doubting God and His love for us because they're here. The trials serve a purpose. They are purposeful trials. These trials are intended by God. They're necessary for our development and growth. And these trials are going to break in blessing on our heads. They're intended by God to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith, to purify us. He compares it to like a refiner's fire. The trials burn away this unbelief that's there, that's remaining, and they make our faith more precious. And that leads to a more love for Christ, more joy in His, in His presence. And finally, we saw that last week, this means that we're an incredibly privileged people. We have a privileged status, we might say, even though it might not look like it now. Right? We're a ragtag bunch, even in America, um, but worldwide. We're, we're not the most glorious people. But Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets longed to understand the gospel realities that we, now, that we know now. He says they long to live in these days and experience what we're experiencing right now. And not just the prophets, but the angels do too. They do right now, he says. They long to know experientially what we know. So we're truly a privileged people, says Peter, even though that we're, we're suffering right now. And that's, that's where we've been. And if you want a summary, really, of those first verses from, from 3 all the way down to 12, you could summarize it by, by saying that God has restored us as His covenant people. God's restored us. And He's restored us just as He promised to do. It began with Israel at the Pentecost as they were converted and trusting, trusting in their Messiah, the remnant, and then it expanded to Gentiles through, through Acts, and it's continued to spread to Gentiles all the way to us here in Lynchburg or wherever you're from when you heard the gospel. God is restoring His people. It's what the Old Testament prophets wrote about. And we, right now, today, are the fulfillment. We are God's restored covenant people. We belong to God's family. But do you know what that means? We talked about this at the end of our sermon last week. To be God's covenant people means we are also His covenant partners. God hasn't simply given us all these benefits for us to sit on the sidelines with Him or just to experience them. 
He's restored us. He's given us this incredible status because he has purposed to use us to fulfill his mission on earth in these last days. You can think of it like this. What Adam and Eve failed to do, what Israel failed to do under the old covenant, we now have the privilege to do. That's what it means to be a restored covenant partner. We belong to the new covenant. With Christ as the faithful covenant partner, He's restored both Jew and Gentile who believe in Him. And He's brought us into this new covenant with new hearts, with God's own Spirit governing our lives. And that means that in these last days, we get the privilege, the privilege of learning to become faithful covenant partners. And that is the context of everything Peter does, beginning in verse 13, through the rest of this chapter. He turns the corner. Now, in verse 13, our verse for tonight. And we might call this message Faithful Covenant Partners, and we're going to talk about part one, because it's a multi-part uh, section here. He's turning the corner in verse 13, and he's starting to draw some of the implications of what our new lives should look like. Because we are restored as His people, and have become His, his partners in His mission... This is what needs to happen. This is how we need to start living these things out. This is what ought to characterize our faithful covenant partnership. The fact that we've been brought into His family has massive implications about the purpose of our lives and how we should live them. No matter what your vocation is, no matter what your gender is, it has massive implications. And that's what Peter starts to unpack in these following verses, beginning in verse 13. He's going to lay out five major instructions in these verses. Five major implications. Five commands for us as His covenant partners. Or we might say five instructions for how to become these faithful covenant partners. How to live out what's already ours. And we're going to work through each of these over the next few weeks. And before we start unpacking these instructions, I just I want to point out a few things to you about this, this whole section. Actually, I'll point them out in just a second. Let's read it. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, command number one, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, here it is, number two, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, number three, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, You who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another, another command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, here it is, long for the pure spiritual milk. Number five. That by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So five major commands here in this section. And he's going to end this section with this return back to our identity, who we are in Christ and what this means for us in this world. We're his chosen race, a royal priesthood, he's going to say down at the, in, the middle of verse, in the middle of chapter 2. And that we're to proclaim his excellencies. So those are our verses, and that's where we're going to be over the next few weeks. But I want to point out a few things to you, again, kind of coming back to our observations, about this whole section, all right? I just said that these instructions are flowing out of the identity that he described in the verses we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And that means that we're not earning our status as covenant partners. We're not earning our status. We've been graciously given the status through Christ, and now we're learning to become that status, to faithfully live it out. The instructions that we're going to hear are flowing out of our status as God's children. Now, how do we know that? Look in verse 13. You see the word therefore? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And he goes into, he launches into the commands. So he's drawing an inference. He's saying, based on everything that we just talked about, about your identity, the fact that you're born again, the fact that you got this inheritance, the fact that you're this, this people that God has restored, based on that, therefore... Your lives need to look like this. So that, that, that little word's a link between what came before it and what's coming after it. And it's an inference. He's drawing an inference here. So that's our first kind of telltale sign that this, that this whole section belongs together. But how do, I, how do we know that all these five commands belong together? Well, there's another indicator. And it's all the family imagery he uses in this section. Laced throughout these instructions is this imagery of, of family and the family relationships. And it's only here. And it binds everything together. And it's flowing out of the fact, back in verse 3, remember all the way back, that we're born again. That we've been brought into God's family. We've been, we've been given new birth and a new hope because of that. So look in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, then. have been born again, and so now as those children, don't be conformed to the pattern. Be holy. Then again, down in verse 17, he says, If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, meaning walk in reverence of your, of your father while you're here on this earth in exile. If you go down to verse 22, he talks about having purified your souls by the, your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So we're loving our spiritual siblings, in other words. And he says, love each other earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So he's, he's working this metaphor of, of family. And then finally, down in, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. So all these commands are related to sort of the family imagery. And so we know that in Peter's mind, all these commands go together. They're kind of a package deal as we're thinking about these, these commands. Now, the last thing I want to point out to you before we get into it is, you'll notice as we work through these instructions that Peter's going to reference the Old Testament a lot. 
Okay? You probably already heard that as we were reading through it. This section, just like the one we came out of, is going to be full of imagery, full of themes, and even direct quotes from the Old Testament. We're going to unpack those as we go along over the next few weeks. But here's the point. Peter sees the church, the people of God, Jew and Gentile, restored in Christ. He sees the church as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. These Old Testament references and allusions, and they all cement that Peter sees the church as God's restored covenant people. As God's restored covenant partners, we might say. A fulfillment of what God was intending from the Old Testament. We're going to unpack those as we go along, and that will become clearer to us. But with the time we have left tonight, let's, let's wade into really just the first of these instructions. Um, I was intended on covering a few more, but had too much to say about this first instruction. So, here we go. Uh, this is the first of five, and um, this outline is going to be really anticlimactic. Because that's my only point. <laughs> so, you writers are just going to have to write based on what I say. Not on what's on the screen. Okay? According to Peter, everything starts in verse 13. And it all starts, in terms of being a faithful covenant partner, it all starts with where we place our hope. With where we place our hope. He says that to be faithful covenant partners, we have to hope exclusively in future grace. We've got to align our hopes, we might say, with the one great hope. We've got to dial in our hope to be in line with what Peter is going to communicate here in our verse. Let's look at it one more time. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says here that our, our first, and we might even say our most foundational responsibility, has to do with where we place our hope. We've got to learn to hope in the right thing, in other words. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. What does it mean to hope in something? What's it mean to hope in something? Hope has to do with what you're banking on, I just say. What you're banking on, what, you're, what everything's riding on. You know, what you, what, what you're, what you anticipate is going to come through for you in the end. It's what you're, you're banking on to fulfill you, to make your life meaningful, to make your life worth living. Hope is what ultimately drives you. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's what motivates you through the day. You hope in what you think is most important, most valuable, most rewarding, most desirable. That's what it means to hope in something. You're just banking on it. You're, you're, you're banking on something to come through for you. It's future-oriented. And we saw a few weeks back that before we came to Christ, our lives were characterized by false hopes, by dead hopes. Remember that? Meaning we set our hope on things that would ultimately not come through for us, but we didn't know it. We were deceived. And I was thinking back today on, on what drove me as an unbeliever when I was in high school. And I remember that I was consumed with wanting to be liked and esteemed by my friends. I don't know if you can identify with that. Pretty common to man. It motivated almost everything that I did. It motivated what I wore. It motivated how I talked, 
what sports I played, who I hung out with, the jokes I told, literally everything. In Peter's terms, I had set my hope on getting approval from other people. I thought that's what would fulfill me. I thought that's what would give my life purpose, meaning. But it was a dead hope. There was no life there. And those dead hopes are what characterized our lives before we came to Christ. And I'm sure if, you know, if we, we were chatting, you could, list, we, you could list yours out as well on what those dead hopes were before you came to Christ. But get this, the fact that Peter, right here, is like exhorting us as Christians to hope in the right things, what does that imply? We have the potential to hope in the wrong things, right? We can get off track when it comes to our hope, even as Christians. Peter's exhortation to us implies that. Like, make sure you're setting your hope on the right things, because you can, you can get off track. We can start to hope in the wrong things. We can get short-sighted. We can fall prey to thinking things matter here more than they actually do. And that's why Peter tells us to set our hope, keyword, fully. Set our hope fully in the right place. You see that little word? Set our hope fully or completely. And that implies that other things, even now in our lives as Christians, vie for our hopes. Does that make sense? It pulls our hopes away from what Peter is calling us to here. And many times these things are good things. Things worthy of our pursuits. Things worthy of our desires. Things we should eagerly pursue and eagerly be involved in. But these good things can sometimes be presented as ultimate things. Things that will fix our problems. Things that we should hope in, ultimately. So what are some of these examples? A few weeks ago we talked about some, so I'll try to give some other ones here. Maybe from my own heart. Politics. You guys are probably like, politics, what a joke. When you get older, it'll become more of a temptation. Trust me. And politics are very important. And all the political majors, amen, right? Politics are important, at least from one perspective. We live, arguably, in one of the greatest countries ever to exist. And it's incredibly important that we are involved, that we vote, that we know what's going on, that we are informed citizens in this republic. But if we're not careful, as important as politics can be, politics are not ultimate. They're not worthy of our hope. If we start getting anxious about who is or who isn't president, if we're sinfully infuriated when the economy does poorly, and so do our investments, or in your case, your job prospects, future job opportunities are jeopardized, if we're laying awake at night scared of what our children might have to endure, what does that reveal? It reveals that my hope is misplaced. That I'm beginning to think that this life is ultimate. That I will be safe and protected, and I'll flourish if I can get the right people in office. The jobs will be plentiful if we can ensure the right policies. And rather than hoping in God, I'm tempted to hope in fill in the blank, human rulers, policies. Here's another one, closely related. 
financial security, money. And that's another important thing. (laughs) Money is incredibly important, isn't it? Without money, we can do nothing at all. We should work hard for money. We should use it to meet our needs. We should save some of it for the future. We should give some of it away. We should use it for the kingdom. And all that means, all that means is that we need to require, we need to acquire money. It's important. But so quickly, though, we can slip into hoping in money. Right? When we're hoping in money and we're, we're in a pinch, we freak out. Like, that's what happens. Instead of turning to the Lord in faith and trusting Him to provide what we need, we just, we lose it. When we're, we're hoping in money, we, we, we think about what could happen in the future and we respond anxiously, right? Rather than entrusting our futures to a God who has already planned it out. When we're hoping in money, we tend to hoard it or be stingy with it because after all, it's what we're banking on to get us through. So quickly, an important thing like money or financial security can become a false hope. We hope in it instead of the Lord who provides it. And so we could keep going. We could talk about friendships. We could talk about dating. We could talk about marriage, having kids, building your dream home, landing your job, performing well in school, moving out from under your parents, having a fruitful ministry, planting churches, fill in the blank. They can all be false hopes. All of these things are good and worthy pursuits, but if it's what we are hoping in, if it's what we're building our lives around, if, it's getting, that, if getting that thing is our greatest anticipation, if we react sinfully when we don't get it, right? We're anxious, we're angry, despondent, we're depressed. If we're sinning to try to get that thing, if we're trying to manipulate our friends so they'll give us what we want, our hope needs realignment, says Peter. We need to set our hope exclusively on the right thing, he says. But what is that thing? What should my hope rest on? What won't ultimately let me down? What will help me endure when none of my earthly hopes materialize? What will provide an unending source of joy now, no matter what my earthly circumstances are? What will result in the greatest reward imaginable that will eclipse everything in this life? Peter tells us. He tells us what we must set our hope on completely. He says we need to lift our eyes, look beyond the horizon of this life to the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter could have said this in so many different ways. I was thinking about that today. So many different ways here. He could set your hope on Christ, set your hope on the resurrection, set your hope on... But he says, set your hope on future grace. Grace that will be brought to us. There's the future, you hear that? Grace that will be brought to us. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the unveiling of Christ. What's he talking about? What events are you referring to? He's talking about the second coming, at his return. So what we're to align our hopes with, in other words, is going to be given to us in the future at the end of this age. And Peter says, it's grace. Grace that will be brought to us. So what does he mean by this? You might be thinking, all right, time out. Don't we already have grace? You know, 
thought, I thought we are the recipients of God's grace in Christ at our salvation. Yes, we have received it. Everything Peter detailed out for us earlier in the chapter, our new birth, the preservation of our faith, that refinement of our faith through trials, the fact that we're privileged people, all that stuff's grace. But there's more to come. More grace coming in the future. So much grace, in fact, that Peter just describes everything that's coming to us, everything that Christ is bringing with him as grace. Why does he describe it like that? Why doesn't he just say, set your hope on the inheritance, or set your hope on the resurrection, or set your hope on being with Christ? Why does he couch it in terms of grace? Well, I think he's communicating a couple things here by saying it just with (laughs) this one word. He's first highlighting how we don't deserve any of it. What's coming to us is completely undeserved. We don't earn what's coming to us, even though we're becoming faithful covenant partners. It's not, we don't get it because of what we've done. Our future resurrection is a grace we don't deserve. Our future inheritance in the new creation, another astounding grace we do not deserve. The rewards we receive for the faithfulness that He's worked in us is a grace we do not deserve. All that's coming to us in the next world is a wildly undeserved gift. It's earned by Christ's obedience, and it's freely given to us in Him. So that's what grace communicates, kind of on the front end. But not only does it highlight how undeserved this thing that's coming is, but it also highlights how glorious of a gift it is. Fundamentally, to call what's coming grace highlights the gift. And it's astounding. All right? It's the greatest gift we could imagine. It eclipses anything we could hope for in this life. It's like what C.S. Lewis says about that boy content to play in the mud puddle, you know, and like, but then there's a hill that he can't see over, and on the other side of the hill is the seaside. But he's just playing in the mud, you know, trying to eat it. Doesn't realize that the ocean is literally on the other side of that hill. He doesn't know it's there. He can't see it. He thinks all is there is the mud. We think marriage is all there is. We think politics, the dream house, the career, having friends, or a fruitful ministry. (laughs) As good as these things are, they pale in comparison to the grace, to the gift that is coming. There is so much more coming. Eternal relationships. Eternal work. Eternal communion with Christ in the new creation. Eternal joy. And calling it grace here communicates the glory of the gift. Grace is a gift. And finally, calling it grace here, saying we should hope in grace that will be brought to us, man, that helps the troubled soul. Do you realize, if you've trusted Christ tonight, that when Peter thinks of the future, when Peter thinks of that glorious, and we might even say terrifying return of Christ, when Christ breaks open the clouds and he pours out his judgment on all who've defied him, When Peter thinks of that incredibly serious and sobering day, he describes it as grace for you. Christ is coming in fury upon his enemies, but for you, it is the most tender grace. He's going to meet you with nothing but grace. 
Not judgment, not wrath, but grace. This is a precious text for me early in my Christian life. When I would doubt, because I spent a lot of my life as a, just as a false convert, and it was hard for me in the early days to know, <clears throat> am I really saved? Like, am I really believing Christ? Because I spent all those years in deception. And I would kind of be plagued with doubt. And this passage would bring me extreme comfort because it's grace that we're going to be met with. Peter wants us to think about our meeting with Christ as the most gracious of meetings. He's meeting us in his love to rescue us and to give us the greatest gift that we could imagine. And it's this grace, this future grace that Peter says is the only rock that's worthy of our ultimate hope. It's that great hope, that living hope that he talked about earlier in the chapter. And here, Peter is calling us to align our lesser hopes, our lesser aspirations with the one great hope. But how do we do that? How do we set our hope on this grace? How do we align our hopes with the one great hope? Well, you probably noticed that we skipped over um, the first part of this verse, but we're not skipping it. I waited to talk about it. In the first half of the verse, Peter tells us how to do this. He tells us what it requires for us to hope in the right things. And he says essentially this. He says it takes mental discipline. It takes mental discipline to hope in the right things. He says here in these parts, he says, preparing, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, then set your hope on the grace that we brought to you. That's how we do it. That's what it looks like to set our hope. It looks like being mentally disciplined. Now, it helps us to know that in the original, both of these verbs here are uh, participles. So, grammar alert. They're participles, which means they're not the main verb. It's just the only takeaway, okay? They're not the main idea. The main verb is set your hope. If you're reading the NASB, it translates it as other other commands, and it has has that flavor for sure, like a call to prepare our minds for action for sure, but they're dependent verbs. They're dependent on the main verb. And what this just means is the participles support this verb. They, They tell us specifically how the command is, is to be worked out. I think that's the best option here. They tell us how to set our hope on grace. And it takes what we might call mental discipline. So let's unpack these verbs here so we can get a, this, a, a picture of exactly how we're to set our hope on the right thing. If we're going to align our hopes, Peter says, our minds must be, he's, ESV says, ready for action or prepared, prepared for action. Your Bible might have a footnote here, um, and if it does, you might get a kick out of what it says. <laughs> Literally, it reads, girding up the loins of your mind. And that's a metaphor we have no idea about today, uh, thankfully. Um, we might say today, you know, it's time to roll up your sleeves, you know. That's a little bit more appropriate to kind of our, our milieu. Um, don't need any guys running around in dresses, okay? <laughs> so you guys are like, what? What are we talking about here? All right, let me explain it to you. Girding up the loins is what happens when you're wearing a toga, okay? Picture it, kind of going down, 
You grab the bottom of it. I'll demonstrate it for you. <laughs> you bring it up between your legs. You tuck it into your belt right there. That's what happens. And so why would you do that? So you can run and not fall down. You know, getting chased by an army, let's say. You need to get out of there. So you gird up your loins so you can move. All right? I always hate that phrase because I always have to act it out. Every time. It's just, it, just needs a, it just needs a demonstration, I feel like. Now you've all got that burned into your mind's eye. But the point is that we're ready for action. He says, engage your mind is the idea. Engage it. Get it ready. So setting our hopes rightly then has to do with how we think. Okay? Has to do with how we think. That's key. That's very key. But what about the second participle? The one that ESV translates as being sober-minded. You see that one? Well, I think this one, being sober-minded, modifies the first participle meaning that we get our minds ready for action by being sober-minded. He's using another metaphor, but this time he's using the metaphor of intoxication. He's calling for clear and sober thinking, meaning we've got to get our minds sobered up if we're going to get it ready to think truthfully. That's because our minds can get intoxicated with the world's hopes. That's kind of the idea. We're tempted to think that that the things are ultimate that are here. Career, grades, friends, money, family, sex, marriage, pleasure, fill in the blank. Tempted to think these things are ultimate. And that's mental intoxication, says Peter. Your thinking is inebriated. It needs to be sober. In other words, you've got to have a clear biblical vision. Your mind needs to be renewed with truth. If we're going to use Paul's categories... This is mind renewal. You've got to be able to see beyond this world to the world that's coming, and that only comes through the truth. So let's step back and put it all together. What's Peter saying? He's saying that if we're going to get our hope on grace, like if we're going to fix our hope on the grace that's coming, it starts with mental discipline. Okay? It starts with renewing our minds. It means it won't be easy. We want to make sure that we, that we fight to see our lives, that we fight to see the future, that we fight to see what's coming through the lens of truth. And when we do, we'll be able to fix our hope on what really matters. We'll be able to discern the subtle lies that are saying, fix your hope right here, right now, on these things, in this life. We'll be able to hear that and discern and realign our, our hopes with that greater hope that's coming. So, let's end tonight by just fleshing out what this, this might look like in a familiar situation. You go back to your dorm room tonight, or you go to your apartment, wherever you go, and you're alone in your room. Most of your friends are dating, and you're not. You're away from home. You don't have that many close friends, actually. And the people who know, or you don't, you don't have a lot of family or people who know you nearby, and so you, you feel alone. Your heart aches because you feel so alone. And you think, if I could just meet somebody, if I could just fall in love, I would never have to feel this way again. I always have a friend. 
always have a companion. Now, is that a legitimate desire? What do you think? Yeah, it is. Of course it is. Is it a good thing to pursue? Yeah. Nod, nod, nod more vigorously, okay? It is. But when it sinks in, these, these things start taking root, and you start thinking that a relationship will fix your life, that the relationship is the answer to your problems. That's when it's getting in the danger zone. Your hopes are shifting. Well, how do you know? Well, the clear answer is when you see sin. You're growing discontent without the relationship. You complain to your family about being single. You envy those who have what you want. You might start dating somebody who's questionable because you want companionship so badly. Those would be some of the signs that your hope is starting to shift. Sin. It doesn't mean you can't ache. You can't long. You can't take proactive steps to remedy the situation. Hint. But what do you do if your hope's shifting? Well, Peter would say you've got to see beyond this life. You have to kick your mind in gear. You've got to roll up the sleeves of your mind and sober up your thinking. All that self-pity, all that jealousy, all that pining away, that is inebriating your thinking. You might have well-meaning friends that give you these false solutions, but Peter would tell you that is inebriated thinking. Instead of drowning away your loneliness in Netflix or on social media, which is just going to compound the problem, by the way, or, or turning to some cheap solution like porn, it's time to kick your mind in gear. It is time to renew your mind, to prepare your mind for action. Recall your future hope the future grace that's coming to you. Even if you never get married, even if you spend your entire life as single, the God of the universe knows you. There is a joy that's coming. There's an intimate relationship coming like you could never have imagined. And not just with Christ, as amazing as that'll be. It's also coming with His people. A belonging that words can't describe. And it will never end. Nothing can threaten it. No sin. No abuse. No divorce. No rupturing of the relationships. No backstabbing. Ever. Nothing. It will only, these relationships will only sweeten over time. They'll only deepen over time. Only the most sincere love will characterize all our relationships in the new earth. No losses. No one will ever move away. No one will ever break up. And you have to place your ultimate hope there. Let your heart rest there and nowhere else. Because having your hope set here, guess what this does? It frees you to live now. It frees you to pursue dating now. It frees you to pursue a career with everything you got in you. It frees you to pursue any good thing in life with vigor and zeal because you're not worshiping it. You're thankful when you get the good thing and yet you're content without it. Joy abounds and it's this kind of otherworldly hope 
that frees you to make the most of this short life. To live it most fruitfully, most productively for the glory of God. And that's why it's first on Peter's list here. It's not the only command he gives in this section, but it is the first. It's the gateway to the others. If our hopes are misplaced, so is our worship. We're enslaved to the idols, to living for those things instead of Christ Himself. And so, if we're going to live out our status as covenant people, if we're going to be faithful covenant partners, it all starts here. The first step is making sure that we're setting our hope fully in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do confess how quickly our hearts shift I know mine does. It's so easy to think about, for me, about living a productive life, living for your glory, living for things that matter, living for um, multiplication, even seeing boundless be fruitful, all these things which are good, noble things. But when I perceive it's not happening or I perceive that something else is, is getting in the way of those things, I'm tempted to sin. And Lord, that is... That's a, that's a false hope. Our hearts drift, and yet, the only reason we're able to even see that is because of your Spirit. Is because you've already given us a living hope. Because you've already caused us to be born again. Because you've chosen us before the foundation of the world. And so we are profoundly humbled. We're profoundly thankful for how you shepherd us. For how you keep us aligned, how when we get off track, you send the trial to refine our faith, to get our, to get our eyes back on you and back on our, our, our great hope. So I pray now that as your spirit's at work, that you're, as you're purifying us and, and realigning us, that um, you would continue to produce fruit in the, the days to come in our group. In Jesus' name, amen.